Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Literacy View. We have a very special guest with us tonight. We have Dr. Steve Dykstra, and many of you know Steve. Steve is a psychologist for over 30 years and has worked in the public sector, community mental health for uh, that length of time. He is a founding member of the Wisconsin Reading Coalition and vice president of the Coalition for Reading Excellence. But he states he has never taught children to read, yet he knows so much. He um, talked with us actually before the show started about how he has worked with many students and discovered many things just from his interactions. And we're so happy to have Steve with us tonight. We will be talking about the reading recovery press release that just came out on October 18th. And um, we found it very interesting. And Judy and I jumped on this and said, we have to talk about it. I was first. I was first. He was first. All credit goes to The ink's not even dry on this thing yet. We're going to talk about it. So let's let's see if any of our thoughts and predictions turn out to be true. Right, exactly. But we 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 couldn't wait. And we're also going to talk about um, an episode that we had a few weeks ago with Bruce Howlett about the reading shift that he spoke about. And he wrote a blog with Jan Wasowicz, and um, they were coming up with this document. They Uh, shared it with us and we had many comments about it and Steve Dykstra also had some thoughts about it so we wanted to see what Steve has to say now that Bruce revised it and some of his revisions are very interesting so we're going to go into a couple of different directions but it all comes back to queuing, doesn't it? And oh my so God, buckle he, your seatbelts, everybody. Here's that word. It's the big C word is coming. It's yeah. not the F word, it's the C word today. Big C yeah. word, queuing. But in interactions I've had with Steve, you know, not all queuing is bad. So, no. yeah. And so we're going to um, talk about that first, okay? Remember, I, even if we're talking about decoding words, one of the cues is the letters. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's good. That is good. That's that good is stuff. good. So then, Steve, I'm going to start off. So then what is bad? So, and I know I'm really asking a rhetorical question, but right. let's let's hear it from you because you have well, such a way with words. Let me let me talk to be to begin with let me be a little critical of something i see on our side of the fence sometimes i'm sorry there is a fence but everybody knows what i mean by that um people on our side of the fence are sometimes so reactive to the queuing to using anything other than letters uh when kids are reading that they miss the fact that queuing is fine for understanding the word figuring out the meaning of the word checking if your effort at decoding makes any sense. You know, if you read house as horse and you're reading, he got when he got home, he quickly went inside the horse. I want you to notice from these other sources of information, that doesn't make any sense. Um, I don't want you looking at the picture or using those sources of other sources of information to avoid 
decoding to avoid using the letters of the word to prompt you about the identity of the word. As my friend Mark Seidenberg says, the best cue to the identity of the word is the word. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you want to figure out what the word is, look at the word. Um, you know, some of the most troubling things a lot of us have seen, and I've seen this like in schools and classrooms and hallways, is some kid struggling to get the word and he's staring at the word. He's trying to decode it. I've seen this several times. And the teacher reaches over very kindly, very lovingly. People probably know where I'm going. She covers the word and says, stop thinking about the letters. Think about what would make sense. Look at the picture. What could it be? And the kid fires off 10 or 12 guesses. And then the 12th, oh. she says, that's right. Um, and that's really good. Good job. And, you know, I just cringe. You know, I, I would just, I'd go out to the car and I'd scream and yell and pound on the dashboard and, you know, damage county property. Um, Sounds like he thinks it's bullshit. Yeah, it's, <laughs> absolutely. You know, and I don't, I'm not critical of those teachers. I didn't confront them or anything like that. They were doing what they were taught to do. They were following not only practices they were taught to engage in, but also theories and ideas and philosophies of reading that they had been told many, many times were correct. And, you know, when a kid is struggling with a word, any it's not hard to think, please, God, just get him past this word so we can read the next one. You know, don't don't keep doing this. Anything that, get, that gets him the word, we're like, great, move on. You know, and I understand that. Yeah. But I I think um, what they're not getting is right. that there is an order of you in, using yes. the cues. Yes. And that we look at the letters first. Phonics should not be at the end of the cueing. It should be the first place you look and to use the context to confirm your choice. To confirm your guess, to understand what, maybe the word's not real familiar to you. And so right. understand what that means. If somebody sees, um, you know, if somebody is used to seeing bicycles as a bike and they see a reference to a motorcycle as a bike, understanding that that's what that means in this case, it's a little bit of a slang term, understanding that. Um, different words for different things. Uh, I didn't know that was called that. I didn't know what that was, um, you know. It, it it allows us to decode language. You know, you think when you're a kid, you're reading words. Good readers as children are decoding words that they don't know, that they've never encountered before. And they can't stop with every one of them and grab a dictionary or raise their hand. Hey, what does this mean? Or ask their friend or their reading partner. Um, they have to develop this skill where they can figure that out quickly enough have a reasonable idea what that word means quickly enough that they can keep going with the sentences, with the narrative, with the exposition, because that's how we best learn these things. Yes. So, Judy, you um, were a reading recovery teacher. You did this for four years. And, um, you know, when you taught children, I'm sure you taught the cueing because that's what you were taught. And I was taught to do that as well. I mean, and um, I taught first grade and that was part of it, that we would teach kids to use all the information on the page. That's what we were told. So could you tell us a little bit about your experience as a reading recovery teacher? Did, you know, from what Steve said, 
Did that make sense to you? Is that what you would do? Does that make sense? I shouldn't even use that term. (laughs) Go ahead. All right. So I'm happy that we're talking about queuing. I don't think we've given enough attention to this topic because that was a very big part of my life. I remember back in 2013 when I was trained, I was like, oh, my God, I need to learn the lingo. So I had this little Fontas and Pinnell, I think, flip chart, and I would highlight the key things that I would want to say based on data. And sometimes it would be, you know, I would see that the kid was making too many miscues on meaning. So a lot of my cues would be, does that make sense? Then some of the kids would just decode and only look at the first letter. And then I would prompt to look at the visual. I think looking back at cueing, I never taught kids to guess, but because I wasn't strong enough in teaching kids how to decode and decode well, like I am now, because as you all know, um, and I've spoken on about this episode after episode, the last seven years of my life has been devoted to structured literacy. But I think looking back, even though I didn't teach kids to guess, and I had many uh, teacher leaders that actually helped me have kids look more at the print, meaning the words. It was interesting. Some instructors were more into the words than others. Some were more into me. It wasn't consistent. And what the issue really was is that, you know, here are these kids that are just learning how to read. I'm like hoping that they get their mouth ready for the first letter. Now I know things like silent D and I knew them, but I wasn't really using the language specifically enough to help those children. And I think that for readers that are just starting out as readers, saying a million things to them, like, does it make sense? Does it sound right? Does it look right? What the hell? The brain might be like, why is this crazy lady like telling me a million and one things? And looking back, I really, really don't think that was the best course of action. I think the best course of action is knowing how to decode, knowing how to decode well, looking at the words taking your finger, making the sound, sliding through the word, making the sounds, and decoding based on what you know. However, I do think that even for my visual, like what we used to be trained to uh, prompt with this cue, um, it's funny, those those cues don't really disappear. You still know them because you were training yourself to say these things. So the, the cue that I used to say was, do you see a part that you know? That was a very big one that I would say. But I wasn't specific. And now that I've been doing many cycles on foundations and phonics and all of that, sometimes I'll say, oh, do you see a vowel team that you know? You know E-E. It makes the sound E. So take your finger, say J-E-P. What is that? So I threw Jeep. And that's a beautiful thing. When you help kids make that connection, looking at that visual print, you Mm -hmm. hit the lotto. So the fact that, and I know we're going to talk about it later, that there's a whole bunch of craziness going on now with lawsuits again. It's like, come on, what's going on here? Yeah. And, you know, I saw a kid once years ago, they were given a set of words. They they couldn't read all of them, but that wasn't the point. They were given a set of words and asked to look for words in the words that they knew. And they, because this will help you learn to read. And like you're pointing out, sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. If you know the word grape and you know the word fruit, that helps you read the word grapefruit. But if you know the words came and me, which are in the word camera, it doesn't help you read camera. Um, And so, you know, that gets very troubling for people. I think one of the things that shocks me, because I've had these kind of 
sometimes gentler, friendly debates, sometimes more raucous debates with people who are big believers in in queuing. Um, and I say, you know, I'll say guessing, and they say, I would never teach a child to guess. And I say, I, I think that's true. I don't, I don't think you're sitting there saying, take a guess. I don't think you're doing that. But what these teachers don't know is all of these methods they're using came from people who truly believed that reading was a guessing game, as as uh, Ken Goodman said, that reading was gen genuinely a guessing game, that better readers were not using all the letters. They were using these different strategies and this wealth of information on the page to guess very, very accurately. And, you know, it's shocking to people to find out that's what they're doing, that they're they're, they may not think of it as guessing, and they may have done everything they could to strip the guessing out of it, but that's where this came from. You know, that's where, that's where this came from. You know, and, and knowing that history is really shocking to teachers sometimes. Yes, and so, you know, when I read this press release, oh boy, it's interesting that it says right here that... Um, you know, they're acknowledging that they're still teaching kids to solve unknown words. It says it right, right. here. Um, and that uh, it says some of the sources of information the brain uses to solve unknown words by using phonics in addition to context and syntax, even the way they organize the words, right? In addition, phonics is in addition to context and syntax. Like context and syntax is the big one, and then we add phonics to it. I think that's very Correct. revealing. It, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think the other thing is I'm with you guys on that one. And, you know, I wish that the language would be different because words do have meaning. And that in the way that it's written is minimizing the importance of decoding. And because of that, I think the literacy crisis is not going away as fast as it should. There's still a lot of teachers in the fields, not in my site, but in men, and maybe some in my site, I don't know, that don't know how to teach kids how to decode well. And it's yeah. really not that hard. Once you learn how to teach kids how to decode well, it's like, boom. It's like, boom, every word is easy to decode. Okay, there's going to be some words with three syllables that may be difficult, but it's not that hard. But we're wasting precious time when we're minimalizing that decoding is very, very important and should be the key. A really and of course, Yeah, and of course, the integration of meaning, of course, that's the goal for everybody, right? We want to make sure that it does make sense, but... It's going to be a lot easier to do that when you're actually reading the correct word. Yeah, and I, I talked, you talk about three-syllable words. I know a woman who's a very accomplished tutor, works with some very yeah. kids who find reading very, very difficult. And like she said, sometimes she, her favorite word is Atlantic. And the reason is it's a three-syllable word. These kids look at this word. They think, I'll never be able to read this. But Atlantic is fun because it's perfectly predictable. And you just need to know a little bit of phonics and you can work out Atlantic. There's a lot of big words that are going to be more oh, difficult than that. But baby, when some kid who can't read at all conquers Atlantic, she said, you really see maybe this is going to work. Maybe I'm really going to be able to do this. Um, you know, it's again in the list of things that I think balanced literacy teachers have no idea that this is their heritage. They have no idea what they come from. I've said I've asked teachers for the last number of years when I get a chance, do you think kids decode or identify a word first and then comprehend it? 
Or do you think they comprehend it first and the comprehension leads them to the identity of the word? They said, well, that doesn't even make sense. How could you comprehend the word before you decode it? Okay, but all of your teaching is based on methods from people who swore to God that was true. Ken Goodman, Frank Smith, to some extent, Mari Clay, believed that kids were actually comprehending the next word before they decoded it. And it was the comprehension that triggered the decoding, not the decoding that triggered the comprehension. Now, I think in the modern world, the more modern world, most people who hear that think that can't possibly be true. You know, he's crazy. Nobody would believe that. No movement that believed that would ever have caught on, except it did. Um, and one of the reasons it did, and I like to tell this part of the story, was these three publications came came out at once. The first grade studies from the Department of Education, over a thousand pages long. The executive summary was over a hundred pages long. Really tough read. Great, amazing research work, but really tough to read. Uh, Jean Charles' book in 19, also in 1967, shorter than the, the first grade studies, but very dense, very heavy, very powerful stuff that has to be read very carefully and very closely. And this first study, nine pages from Ken, Ken and Yetta Goodman, reading, colon, a psycholinguistic guessing game. They all pretty much came out in the same year. The first two don't get read. They don't get assigned in classes. And if they do, it takes you a whole semester to get through them. Goodman's paper could be assigned in part because of a new invention that was very popular on and around campuses, the Xerox machine. You could Xerox this nine-page study, ba-boom, 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 and hand it out. Everybody, you could give people 10 minutes to read it in class and then discuss it. So it was very influential. It was widely distributed. It was wrong. It was a poorly done study. It was wrong. The conclusions were all wrong. But by the time Stanovich and other people had discredited it, Stanovich discredited it in a study he expected would confirm it because he really believed it. And then he had to admit, yeah, this doesn't work at all. Um, it was too late. It was a movement. It was a philosophy. Yep. So, you know, something I have to tell you, I worked with kids um, for 30, what is it now? <laughs> 37 years. 37 years. Wow. And you still haven't taken a break. Every time I text you, I call you. I'm busy. I'm working. I'm with the kids. Well, she's been, she's, she's been doing this for 37 years and she started when she was 11. So, you know, this is the only life yeah. she knows. Oh, right, wow. Right. You're too kind. But anyhow, 37 years. And I could tell you that these kids who think that they make meaning first, will end up pulling words that they already know. They are they think that they have to know all the words before they read the words. That's the problem with this. So, you know, you take a little seven-year-old and their limited vocabulary, and they look at a word that they don't know, they will turn it into a word that they already know. And so they end up decoding it incorrectly, even if they knew how to decode. Right. So that's making them into poor readers. And people don't understand that when you tell them, oh, read for meaning. Well, meaning to a seven-year-old is very different. So they start trying to pull out words that they already know. One of the best arguments against whole, the whole language portion of balanced reading, which is, you know, a lot of it, it's it's all the parts that we're debating. And I got this years ago. I was doing some stuff. I ended up in a series of phone conversations Marilyn, with Marilyn Adams. I was like, God, Marilyn Adams reached out to me. This is the, like the legend, you know. 
we're talking on the phone and she said, she pointed out that one of the best arguments against whole language, the proof that whole language can't be true, is that skilled readers who read a lot see their vocabularies expand exponentially. She said, now think about that. If you could only, if you, if they were decoding words because they already understood the comp the comprehension and knew the words, reading could never grow your vocabulary because you could only read words you already knew. So if their vocabulary is getting bigger, it has to be that they're decoding the words first and then figuring out the meaning. If you if it if you can only read words you already know and understand, reading could not grow your vocabulary. Let, yet we know that reading is the most powerful thing to grow somebody's vocabulary. Correct. Bingo. Wait, yeah. what's the opposite of a bullshit button? <laughs> we have to buy one. <laughs> I miss so. a bingo button. <laughs> and you know, I, I hope people who hear that hear me say that stop and think about that for a minute because it's like saying you can it's like telling people you can only use a map to get to places you've already been that's right, right. Exactly. well if that was true if that was true we could know we could only go to places we'd been before the map could never take us to any place else except the map in reading takes us to all kinds of places we've never been before so it must be that the map works even for places i haven't been Correct. So now we have this press release and, you know, we didn't really tell anybody about it, but the press release is about the Reading Recovery Council of North America right. filed a lawsuit against Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. And Good luck with that. Yeah. Why do you know that's the only Ohio? There's so many other states changing. It's because the Reading Recovery Center of North America is based in Columbus, Ohio. It has been. So that's where they want to start. Okay. They're going to start there. So it's almost like an analogy, Judy. Like Lucy and TC to New York is like. No, I know it was in Ohio. I just thought it was interesting because, you know. The laws are changing in a lot, a lot of places right now. Connecticut is changing where I live. New York City is changing. Changed in Wisconsin uh, where I am. Yeah. New York State is not, though. Westchester County, I'm seeing mostly a lot of TC with balanced literacy. That's why I'm getting a lot of clients with kids so, that are very confused right now. It's not just that they're based in Ohio, but you have to think about what that means. If we pass a law in Wisconsin or Connecticut or New Jersey or California, that's an impediment to them. If this law gets goes into effect in Ohio, they won't be able to train teachers in Ohio to teach this way, except with like one kid they're tutoring. There's not going to be any schools doing this. They're going to lose their ability to keep growing their army. And, you know, so, I mean, I can understand from their point of view, this is this is the place. This is D-Day for us, man. These are the beaches at right. Normandy. If we can't do this, we're in trouble. But. The funny thing for me is over the years, because I argue with people pretty readily, over the years, arguing with reading recovery teachers face-to-face -face and online, at one point, 10, 15 years ago, they would tell you that they did all these things and they would say it very proudly. Now they say, that's not what we do. We don't do that. I don't know where you got that idea. We don't do that. Here, they're, If they really didn't do it, why are they filing a lawsuit against the law that says don't do it? But, you know, I think it's unfair to say 
day, 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 because there's a lot of people that's out right. there like me, right? There's somebody like me who's invested seven years of my life to really saying, you know, some things were great. And, you know, we've talked about it on other episodes, like the Elkonin boxes, the phrasing and fluency was something we worked on a lot of writing, interactive writing. There were great things, but, you know, there's a lot of people like me and I don't, I just don't think that they're as vocal because like you said, Steve, right. sometimes the other side could be so unpleasant and attacking. And I think, you know, there's almost like, it's almost like there's people in the closet. Last night I talked to, not, not in that way, you know what I mean? But <laughs> last night I talked to an administrator and she was actually, she was a reading recovery teacher leader. She wants to come on the show and I hope she does. She's told us that before she didn't do it, but this time she says she really wants to. And she's made many shifts too. Now, has she shifted as much as I have? She has not. She's still, you know, reading recovery at heart in some way. But I think that everybody is uniquely on their own journey. The problem is there's too many people that are very vocal for reading recovery that don't acknowledge the major things that should have shifted. And I think that those pieces should have been spoken about very, 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 a long time ago. I mean, yeah. Judy, Judy, I think there was a, Judy. I think there, you know what it is, Faith? I think there was such a missed opportunity. And that's why sometimes I get upset. I do this podcast because I passionately believe that things do need to shift. I'm not making money off of this. This is my passion project, right? This is my so, afterwork. So Judy, 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 but, but yeah. this, but this lawsuit yeah. does not go along with what you're saying. Okay, I know you feel that way. Okay. And, I, and I think they this. missed an opportunity. It's very disappointing. It's upsetting to me. Yeah, it it's is. I, you know, and I, I, to give an idea, so we have, you know, we have states in the country who feel the need to pass laws like we've passed in Wisconsin, which also bans 3 queuing, and there's a lot of gnashing of teeth about that. But different states were at different places. And, and I have to share that in Wisconsin, the Wisconsin State Reading Association, which is our branch of the ILA, used to be the IRA, and they're quite, they're, they're very orthodox whole language. They would never say ortho, whole language, they're quite orthodox. To give you an idea how severe it was, how severe it was, is that the Wisconsin State Reading Association, the, these three people who mostly lead the association, were appearing before the legislature, and I was on a special committee of the legislature to talk about these things. We're talking about dyslexia and the need to have a dyslexia guidebook for the state of Wisconsin. They got their fingers in there. They got half the power over writing the dyslexia guidebook. They included a passage in there. They included a warning in there, which is completely garbage, warning districts that if you screen for dyslexia, you should be warned that you might not have the authority under federal law to do so. This, this implication that by doing this, you might get in legal trouble, but it gets worse. In 2018, so just already in, two, in 2018 still, their official position remained that phonemic awareness is not important and that screening or testing for phonemic awareness harms children and should never be done. That was their I'm surprised about because I know that there was a lot of phonemic awareness that we did work on in reading recovery. Yeah, but they didn't, their official position, their their actual phrase from their official position is that stories of the importance of Phoenix, of of the importance of phonemic awareness are myths, much like stories of alligators. They, and didn't, big they, they didn't shift it lately. Steve. No. In 2018, they re still refused to step away from that. And that's my fear is 
My fear is that in the fight to stomp out that kind of orthodoxy, we're going to impose our own form of orthodoxy. Mm. Where, you know, and for those of you who aren't involved in some of these groups, if you if you ask the question in a public in these public debates on the science of reading, if you ask the question, what order should you teach letters in? Or should you teach the names of letters or just the sounds of letters? People will get in the virtual version of a knife fight. I mean, these are are people who are absolutely sure. If you're not doing this this way, it's not the science of reading. The science of reading to them is this narrow little path where everything is done in this exactly identical way. And that's crap. We cannot let that happen. Yeah, that is so true. And you're right. So there is, you know, even fighting on one side that goes on. And I've seen it. So let's get off of now, you know, the little, um, you know, details about reading recovery. And let's talk about like this lawsuit, because that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Um, You know, it says in a move to stand up against government overreach. That's what they're saying, that um, they feel that basically the State Board of Education should be making these decisions about curriculum policy, and it should not be, um, you know, in the hands of the governor. So what are some thoughts about this? Because, you know, do they have a case is this a case? Do they, is what they're saying, um, you know, an overreach? What do you I think, think? I think if they're if if they portray this law as indu- inducting people into what we will call facetiously the reading police, um, and that there's going to be reading police looking through classroom windows and listening in over the loudspeaker, and you know, the first time a teacher says anything about anything in teaching except the sounds of let sounds of letters you know phonics and phonemic awareness um that they're going to just sit come f- repelling down on ropes from the ceiling tiles and drag her off <laughs> the, the cookie monster's going to jump into the class i don't want that and i don't want anything like that and i don't want the real world world version of that and i don't want teachers to live in fear about that that's um, right. and you know if a teacher does that once in a while because that's kind of the reflex she has in the i'm not going to that's not going to kill anybody but the reason for the laws, the reason for the laws, in my estimation, and certainly in Wisconsin, the reason for these bans on three queuing is not so much to extirpate three queuing from, from the uh, ecology of schools. It's to create necessity that now I need to learn something else because they're taking this away from me. You know, one of the best ways to get people to eat vegetables is to throw out all their candy and marshmallows. You know, if you throw out everything else, if you don't let them bring it in the house, eventually they're going to have to eat the damn vegetables. You know, so that's part of the strategy here. On the other hand, if they're coming forward and trying to make an argument that this really, as they seem to say in their press release, this really is how kids read. They're going to get their ass handed to them in court because the, the research is deep. Yes, kids read this way who struggle to read. Or, or who are very, very early readers. If they're going to, I hate to say this because I don't, I don't really want to, I think there's a chance they'll get this incredibly wrong and they'll cite Linnea Airy 
and her phase model of kids reading. And they'll talk about kids in the pre-alphabetic phase and they'll say, this is what they do. They see the word apple, they see the picture of an apple and they say apple. And you're telling us we can't do that. Nobody's saying you can't do that with three and four and five-year-olds. We're saying you can't make that your strategy going forward. And if they cite Ari, somebody's going to put Linnea on the stand and she's going to say what she said to me in an email address and in a phone call. That model is descriptive, not prescriptive. It right. describes what kids do. It doesn't describe what we should teach them to do. Kids. Yeah, sorry. You're right, Judy. We need the opposite of a BS button. We need a big Yes, Steve. We, we yes. need to create it and market it and nobody can copy <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, yeah. I can come up with all kinds of metaphors. You know, kids mostly crawl before they walk. That doesn't mean when they're getting around the school, we should teach them to crawl. You know, right. kids start out pooping in diapers, not in the toilet. Doesn't mean we should be encouraging them. Just go ahead and poop in your pants. You know, that's not what you do. You're trying to take them to the next developmental stage. You're trying to push them forward, not hold them back. Right. Well, you know, in this press release, they also said that the science of reading movement lacks peer-reviewed studies. You know, I don't know about... I mean, that's just, that's just yeah. mythology, you know? Yeah, that's... But, yeah. So many people, you know, most a lot of people listening to this are familiar with the report of the National Reading Panel. Fewer people are familiar with um, Snow's report two years earlier in 1998 for the National Academy of Sciences. National Academy of Sciences sounds like a big thing. It's actually bigger than what right. it sounds like. When NASA couldn't figure shit out, they called they called the National Academy of Sciences. You know, yeah. um, they are incredibly influential. They serve Congress and other international agencies around the world to help them answer big scientific questions. They have access to the brightest minds and the best research. And when they issued the Snow issued her report in 1998, in the executive summary, page nine, it says. These other queuing systems are very useful for confirming a queuing effort or for determining the meaning of a word, but, and this is almost an exact quote, should not be substituted for the information gained from the letters themselves. That's it. Steve, can I ask you a question? So I was, you didn't even say yes or no, but anyway, I'm going to continue because that's my crazy self. All right. So I was trained in reading recovery under the I-3 grant. It was in 2013. I think they said that Obama or somebody created a grant. And we first I didn't want to get trained. And then I was like, my God, I hit the lotto. Why did that happen? If we already had that research at that time, what went wrong that that was like the golden ticket in education? We were told this is the best thing ever. This is the opportunity of a lifetime. So I jumped on it. So there's um, one of the things that happened in the I-3 grant was uh, reading recovery and balanced literacy were fighting back. Um, They had, after eight years of a Republican White House and a mostly Republican Congress, they had some influence. And sad as it may be, and I say this as a staunch Democrat, liberal Democrat by any estimation, I've met Barack Obama. I have pictures of him with the two of us together in a personal letter that he sent me. If I was standing there, I wouldn't have let him do it. I would have knocked the pen out of his hand. But generally speaking, at that period of time, the science of reading and phonics and whatever you want to call it was politically aligned with conservatives and 
more liberal progressive thinkers believed in uh, you know, teachers and teachers unions and teacher organizations, and we need to back the teachers and the teachers know what's right and get off their backs and don't tell them what to do was largely a more progressive democratic movement. And so they got this from them. The interesting thing about that is the I3 grant funded the big reading recovery study in Ohio, which I had issues with how that study was done, but the initial findings from the study was, hey, look, reading recovery really works. And they followed those kids longer and in arguably one of the most robust longitudinal studies ever done on reading instruction. In fact, it is the most, and if there's something bigger, I don't know what it is. They found that not only was reading recovery ineffective, but kids in reading recovery did worse than kids who got nothing. Exactly. And that's exactly- what about that? What were clearing health thing? And then there were memories that I had that we would- well, I'm gonna tell you something. When, okay. So we were doing like we would we were told to enter data into a data system, the IDEX system, and there was a control group. We were told it all sounded, you know, legit when we were doing it. First of all, there were very few studies that really showed um, these great outcomes. I think so maybe what, what was that? What works? We were always told to look at that. What works clearinghouse? So what works clearinghouse? There's some problems at what works clearinghouse, and these some of these are problems that are not. Many of these are problems that are not unique to them, and some of them are some problems statistically that all of us have on both sides of this argument. And oh. I'll share what I think a few of those are. So what works clearinghouse has a process for screening out certain studies and all this kind of stuff. And they don't really, they don't really look at the studies or analyze the studies as deeply as they can. And as Faith was pointing out, you know, they can have four studies that show really good results and they go for it and they jump all over it and all that kind of stuff. If you read the fine print of what works clearinghouse or can kind of have this conversation with them, they admit we're not saying these are the things that work better. We're saying that within their paradigm, within their view of reading, they seem to have evoked the greatest change in their students. Um, the other yeah. problem they have, so there's some word games in that. Interesting right. thing was people object. They had a they had a very positive finding for reading recovery, and people pointed out that some of the many of the studies they they used to arrive at it didn't really meet the standards of reading recovery. So they redid it, and they came up with a whole different list. They did it like three times, and every time they surveyed this, the literature. They came up with a completely different list of studies. So how is that possible that you use the same rules to call the research and you got completely different lists each time? The biggest reason that happens is because it's bloody damn hard to go through that many studies and think you found everything. The other problem they have, and there are people who get upset about this. Matt Burns has been very upset with me about this. Too damn bad. I don't care. Um, but it's the over-reliance on effect sizes. The problem with effect sizes, quite frankly, is we call them effect sizes. And people think an effect size means that this is more effective. And when I said that online to Matt Burns, Matt Burns said, that's exactly what it means. He sort of lost his mind, except it's not. So let me tell you real quick how an effect size works. I look at the size, I look at the population of students, the sample group of students that were in the study. I look at the standard deviation, which is a measure of how spread out their performance was across the scale. I take the standard deviation and I tell you how many standard deviations of change did we get? So what that means is, let's imagine we had two studies, one study of 
Science of reading, one study of reading recovery, or one study of balanced literacy. And the effect size, um, you know, and the, the distribution of how kids did was in the balanced literacy, in the uh, um, science of reading study was very wide. But every kid in the balance, in the science of reading study did better than any kid in the, in the balanced literacy. So while it's a very broad distribution of kids who did gained a lot to kids who just gained a little, they all gained more than anybody in the balanced literacy study. But the balanced literacy study had a very narrow distribution. Almost all the kids did exactly the same. That creates a very small standard deviation. So we say they went up one and a half standard deviations, but their standard deviation is very small. The kids in the other study went up only three-tenths of a standard deviation, but because their standard deviation was big because they had such a broad range of outcomes, they get a lower effect size. And the Henry May, who is the lead author on the I3 studies, told me in a conversation that he can already see evidence that researchers for these companies, these different products, and that's happening on our side too, are doing everything they can to narrow down the variability in the kids they're enrolling in their studies. So they have a very narrow range of performance that they're addressing. And then they're almost guaranteed to get great big effect sizes because the world is drunk with effect size. You know, yeah. the other thing that happens, and I know this happens, teachers go, well, what's got the biggest effect size? Let's take that. It had the biggest effect size for kids who aren't struggling to read and improving their whatever, their decoding, their fluency, their comprehension, the speed of the reading. It doesn't matter. And they're taking kids who are struggling to read and they're using that because it had the biggest effect size. It didn't have the biggest effect size with this population. And these kids are struggling to decode and they didn't even measure decoding in their study. So they're taking things that don't match up because they're being driven. Take the thing with the biggest effect size. Well, you know, it's like numbers don't lie, but people do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I agree with all of that, but we did do something called the slots and where it, that was research-based or it seemed like it was evidence-based yeah, yeah. and, it, and it checked the coding. And a lot of the kids that I started with, they would be able to read only like three words on that list. And by the end, they were able to read like 76. So it had to have helped somewhat in terms so of- Are you familiar? Coding. There's a Stanford study about this. You may or may not be familiar to it. I think it was Probably Stanford, might have been Berkeley. So a really interesting study. Yeah. They took a bunch of people, adults, good readers, so yeah. adults, and they taught them a new language with an entirely new alphabet. The whole thing was made up. Nobody had ever seen it before. And half of them were taught to just remember, to learn the words by looking at the words, just wrote memorization of sight words. And in the beginning, that group made the greatest amount of progress. At the end of the first day, at the end of the second day, at the end of the first week, they could read more words in this pretend language than other people could. Mm -hmm. The other group was learning to translate the symbols of this made of this brand new novel alphabet into the sounds of this brand new novel language. They started out very slowly. They were way behind in the beginning. So if you were testing in the beginning, you would say, well, this is clearly working better. This is the way to go. <laughs> if you tested a month later or two months later, the people who were learning to decode oh, light years ahead. And that's, that's exactly what I saw. I would work with kids, Steve, after they had reading recovery, but 
they still needed help. And as a matter of fact, they were worse than kids who did not have reading recovery because they had all these strategies that we first had break and then start over to break. So, you know, I think looking at long-term outcomes that these types of things don't show the long-term outcomes. In the short run, it looks like they're doing okay. Um, But when you look over time, there's not evidence there to support these long-term outcomes. And we see that the reason that happens is, first of all, looking at long-term outcomes is really hard to do because you have to keep track of people. I'm familiar with some studies, some long-term, like 25 and 30-year longitudinal studies of big population samples, you know, 100,000 people. By the time they get to the end of the study, this is very interesting, virtually the whole budget is being spent on private investigators just to find people. Mm -hmm. You're trying to locate enough of these people that your study can continue to generate data because people move around. That's a lot easier in the age of the internet, but it used to be a huge problem. So following people over long periods of time is very difficult, very expensive. And the other problem is we are all impatient as hell. Nobody wants to wait for that. They want to put the class, they want to put the program in in the classroom on Monday. And by Friday, they want an answer. Did it work? And that, you know, that's everybody's fault. Everybody, you know, the fact of the matter is the longitude, there aren't, there aren't as many longitudinal studies on what we like either. You know, that, that's a really big challenge to do that. And, you know, and it's not just for education research or reading research. It goes on in medicine. You know, we follow med- we follow med trials enough that we understand whether people are doing better or worse and we make very careful decisions. But it is not uncommon. Um, it doesn't happen that often, but it certainly has happened enough that you can't say it's rare that 10 or 15 or 20 years after a medicine is approved, somebody steps up and says, oh, wait, this is a bad idea. Or more likely you find out the medicine isn't still a bad, isn't a bad idea, but you know, it's not what we thought it was. The first studies on Oxycontin that were done by the the pharmaceutical company said, this isn't addictive. Well, you know, if you give it to them on Monday and you measure addiction on Tuesday afternoon, it's probably (laughs) not addictive. Check back in six months and see what's going on. You know, and, and that happens in a lot of places. And, you know, that's just a huge challenge. And we have to go back sometimes and rework what we think and what we believe about things. So I remember, um, you know, when I was with Reading First, uh, you know, there was a point when you talked about the Bush administration, when they basically said no to Reading Recovery. It was not on the approved list of programs. And wasn't there a lawsuit from what I remember? Marie Clay flew in from New Zealand, mm-hmm. gathered her army. And this is a story I get from somebody who was in the room. He's passed away now, a guy named Bob Sweet. Bob yeah. Sweet was in the room, but other people were in the room too. And if this comes up at the trial, there are people alive who were in that room, or took notes, heard from other people immediately afterwards, know what the story is. What I was told was, Mari Clay said, tell us what language we have to use to describe the program. We'll call it whatever you want. Yes. We're not changing anything. That's right. We'll, we'll, make, we'll make it fit whatever you decide to do. 
like, you know, for we'll the maybe check all the boxes, but then we're going to do whatever but we But then do. we're going to do exactly. I remember that too. Um, yeah. That's a problem. That's a problem. And, I, and you know, while, while you guys were talking, I wrote a couple of problems. There was a lot of problems. There were good things. And I'm not talking about that on this episode. They ignored dyslexia. We weren't allowed to say the word dyslexia. It was like, yeah. it was like, we whispered, does dyslexia exist? Yes, it exists. I see it every day now. Yeah. Not every kid has it. Some kids are suffering from right. dyslexia. But yes, we can speak about dyslexia. It does exist. We cannot say it does not. Um, there were problems with leveled books. I see mom. I see dad. I see tractors. Give me a break. Those books sucked. Okay, they were horrible. <laughs> Ridiculous to have multisyllabic words in, in these level A books and then give it to kids that don't speak English and then expect them to decode it. Um, ignoring the fact that we need decodable texts for early readers. Yes, there's some research that says, you know what, I've been doing it now for a long time. And guess what? Decodables do help many early readers break right. the code. And everybody who says they're boring, they suck. There's great decodables. Faith has shown me the way. And I have a whole basement full of amazing decodables. And you know what? I just posted a video on Twitter. And you know what? Not that many people liked it. It was a kid that read decodables for a while with me because in school he was messed up because he had Lucy all day and then a half hour of foundations. And this was the kid that kept saying, Miss Judy, I'm really confused. I don't know what I, you're telling me this. They're telling me this. They're telling me, look at the picture. And guess what? We did decodables for a couple of months. And then I posted a video. He's no longer reading decodables. He's in regular books, enjoying his life. The light went out. You know what? He still could work on phrasing and fluency, and there's sure. time, but it's a short window of time, and it helped a kid. So, all this bullshit of people coming on our show, and you know who I'm talking about, Faith, and saying, <laughs> blah, 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 Dr. Sam, Dr. Sam, you missed an opportunity too. So, continuously reading recovery missed the opportunity. And I remember when I was kind of seeing the light uh, during my years in reading recovery. And like I said, there were great things. I'll do a whole episode where I'll spend 40 minutes about talking about the good. But I remember thinking in my gut, something's just not right. Mm -hmm. And then I had this weird idea. I was like, maybe I could take everything new that I've learned and fix reading recovery or make it better. Why aren't they calling me? And I was waiting for the phone call and then I made some phone calls. And guess what? Nobody wanted to listen. So when you don't listen and you don't shift your mindset and you don't admit that things that you did were maybe not the best for kids and keep looking at studies that are outdated, then that's your problem. And your problem becomes kids' problems. So let's... Well, and yeah, you know, I'm sorry. Let me Go say ahead. one of the things that I think reading recovery got very right, and I I see sometimes some signs of reading dedicated teachers who are reluctant to do it because they think that's too much like you know what they do in, in balanced literacy. The best, and I I I you know, you have to know what you're doing, you have to understand what you're doing. The best assessment for any kid who's struggling to read, the best assessment is a knowledgeable teacher who sits next to them and listens to them read and makes notes about what they're hearing. You know, that that is, there's no assessment Bingo. better than that. There's, there's no And, you know, I see, ki I see kids, some, not commonly, but often enough, where really dedicated science of reading teachers 
are looking at this printout from these formal assessments and saying, well, he's doing well, he's doing well. Yet they sit next to the kid and he can barely get through a 60 second passage. And I'm like, how can you say they're doing well? Right. That is so true. And that's funny. That was the one good thing I listed on my list for that column. It said reading behaviors. And Faith, I know your definition of reading behaviors might have been different than mine. For me, reading behaviors was what Steve just mentioned, watching the way they what they did when they touched the word, watching how their finger moved from word to word, watching yes. you know what their eyes do. We really were trained different to watch behaviors, them. different. We're valuing different things than they do in reading recovery or they do in balanced literacy or whole language. But like people will ask me, what do you think of a running record? And I th- said, you mean sitting next to a kid? listening to them read and gaining information from that, I think it's great. If you know what information matters, if you know what the information means, it's very, very important. You know, think about it if, you, if you're if you sick or somebody else is sick and they go to their primary care physician and you're sitting there, you look like hell, you've got bags under your eyes, you feel terrible, you tell the doctor, I, I got no energy, I can't do anything, I feel sick all the time, I'm throwing up. The doctor takes some blood, takes some urine, gets the results back and says, I've looked at everything. Everything's fine. You're good to go. I don't know. I think the oral reading fluency, I kind of shifted. I was the one that used to sleep with my running records. I really did. And I think I do them better than the average person. But I think they were time consuming. I think they took away from instructional time in the classroom. I think a lot of norming wasn't the same and consistent in um, the grades. People marked contractions different ways. People would mark if they got the word wrong 20 times one way, 20 times another way. Um, I also thought that those questions, wait, one more thing. Those questions, they used to answer. You're still talking about miscues. And that's problematic. Right, just right, but that's but that comes that ties into why I like an oral reading fluency via oh, a case and a screener. I, I think better than a running record. I think those CBMs and the other things like that that you can do in forty five seconds. I think they're Amazing. great. What me I'm too. talking about is if you sit with the kid and you're noticing some real problems in their reading, you can't look at the stuff they do good and say there's not a problem. You got to figure out what that problem is. On the other right. hand, if you sit with a child. If you sit with a child and they seem to read very smoothly, they seem to read well, but they're not doing good on some of your progress monitoring, you got to figure out, okay, why is this? How are they How are they managing to do it okay when I sit with them, but they do so poorly when I isolate this one skill? you got to know what you're looking at. That's right. And that's exactly what I saw, Steve, that they would come out okay when they were in these level books because they had support in the level books. But as soon as they didn't have that same support, they were doing poorly in those types of assessments. So let, me, let me tell you what they did in my school district back when they were hardcore whole language and balanced literacy. This just blew my mind. So they were using, I won't say which one, but they were using a version of a classic whole language running record. And they were teaching kids when they read to start on every page by kind of glancing at the page, seeing what words you recognize immediately, looking at the picture, um, thinking about what's in the picture. So pre-reading, before going through the book the whole way, before you try to read the words on the page. And when they would do timed like 60-second reads or anything like this to see how many words they could do, they wouldn't start the clock until the kid was done with that. (laughs) It's true. It was called a sneak peek. It's true. And every time the kid turned a page, 
they, they took it so far as that when the kid was looking at the picture, they would stop the clock. And when they went back to the words and, and they said, when we do that, we find that the kids who read, who we've taught to read for whole language do much better than kids who were taught phonics. And I, they did their own little study. I said, what do you do with the kids who start phonics? Oh, we just start the clock and run it continuously. Well, yeah, they're doing better. You're giving them two or three more exactly. minutes to do it. And exactly. they, said, they said, but we have to. It wouldn't be fair otherwise. Because <laughs> that's what we've taught them to do. Said, well, holy crap, you know, if I put my thumb on the scale, I can make anything heavier. Right, exactly. And, but it made sense to them at the time. God bless them. It made sense to them at the time. So this so all like history repeats oh, itself, right? This is all like history repeats itself. Same things that happened in, you know, early, what was it, 2005 with what we were talking about. And here we go again with the same thing. And because we kind of give in, and that's where I'm kind of segueing into the Bruce Howlett article. Um, you know, I think that I... Judy and I spoke to Bruce and he is just one of the nicest people and just um, it comes across in everything he does. Yeah. Just wanting to really pull the best out of every area, looking to experts, trying to really bring this together. And I just thought what he was saying was wonderful. The problem is I could see how this multi-component can turn into something like balanced literacy where we give and they give. And you know what? It comes to this point where it's not the science anymore, that we give in so much that when I say give in, where we go along with things that we know are not the right way to do things, that's a problem. And in Bruce's original article, he kind of tried to give, um, you know, credit to balanced literacy in the same vein as science of reading and tried to weigh it out evenly on a chart, on a table that, you know, I think that could be problematic. And I almost see that happening with this press release, with reading recovery. Your thoughts, Steve? So I, I agree, and I think you know that I responded to Bruce, and he was very magnanimous and accepted a lot of my suggestions and made some decisions, and, and that's not easy to do. We all love our own words and our own work and our own thoughts, and so he deserves an enormous amount of credit for yes. that. I think there is a, an excessive desire to make it all come out even. So science of reading has these six great ideas. Balanced literacy has these six great ideas. Between we have 12 great ideas. Let's go. Um, we sometimes... When people try to do that, we sometimes end up with ideas that can't both be true. You know, we're, we're and when, then we pretend that isn't happening. Um, that's not a good thing. I think one of the things, the approach I like to take, so I, I spoke to the people in my home, my school district I grew up in was in Racine, Wisconsin, the Racine Unified School District. I still have a really big place in my heart for them and, and all the challenges they face and how hard they work. And they invited me to come talk to them at the to kick off their year, I think it was well-received. I was really impressed with something that they were doing. They were trying to move towards the science of reading, which is a big decision for them because they were hardcore balanced literacy. And they're helping teachers by letting them work in teams and working as schools and as disciplines to put everything they do, everything they're gonna do now in one of three categories. 
This is stuff we're going to start doing. So stuff we didn't do before, we're going to start doing. This is stuff we're going to stop doing, stuff we did before that we're going to stop doing. That's going to be hard for some people. It's a little threatening. But then the biggest list is going to be stuff we're going to keep doing. And they're including that in their classification because that's important to remind people we're not changing everything. Right, you know, right. There's, there's more. There's going to be a lot of stuff that's still familiar to you that we're going to keep doing. And it, it makes people feel a little more comfortable. Right. I believe that 90% or more, 90% or more of the differences between balanced literacy and the science of reading are restricted to the arena of what am I to do when I encounter a word I don't immediately recognize? That's 90% of it. Read interesting literature. Great. Absolutely. Nobody disagrees with that. Talk about the stories you read, have good conversations, get a chance to write about it. Can't do that enough. Can't do that enough. You know, I think one of the things that we don't do well on our side, timed little 60 second assessments have left some teachers with the idea that reading fast is the goal. We we time these assessments. Let me explain why it's, why it's good to time assessments. It's not because we want everybody to be fast, fast, fast. The reason we time assessments, and the best way to give an example of this is math. If I had 100 people and I needed to rank them as well as I could, and who is the best at math and who is the worst at math, who knows the most math, I might have to have a test that's got a 1,000 questions on it to really put these folks in order. It would take a day to take the assessment. It would take 10 years to write, to create it. It's a really arduous task. Or I can have a simple math test, maybe 50 or 60 problems that are all pretty simple. Nothing's too complicated at all. It's all really basic arithmetic, but I'm going to time you and see how many you can get done in 102 minutes. That's going to separate the strongest mathematicians from the weakest mathematicians, even using very simple questions. And that's what we do with things like oral reading fluency. But too many teachers on our side have made it easy to misinterpret that as the goal is to read fast. We're not trying to teach kids to read fast. We're we're using speed and timing to make the the assessment very, very efficient. You know, if you want to measure, if you want to measure how well a person can walk and are they having any difficulties, you can just measure how far they can go in 60 seconds. I don't, I don't need the people who go the farthest in 60 seconds are very much going to be the same people who go the farthest in a day. Um, I'm I'm totally with Steve on that one. And, you know, if you decode well, it's your speed is going to be better, right? If you're struggling. It's a good thing. It's a really good thing to decode well. Exactly. Boom, 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 boom. Right. And you'll get through more of the passage. And hopefully, because you were able to read the words, hopefully you'll also understand. And if you don't understand, then we're going to target comprehension as well. Yeah. And if I and if when that kid gets to some shared reading in the class, he tries to read as fast as he tried to read my list, I'm going to stop him and say, no, 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 honey, that that's read more slowly, sound really good at it, treat it almost like a song. You're going to express yourself. You know, that's what I want. And that's not a problem. These kids pick that up fine. The other the other thing that I worry about sometimes, and some of the people on our side of the fence, I think, blow this horn too loudly, is people say, we got to be careful not to spend too much time teaching the, the kids who are learning more easily, teaching those kids things they already know. We shouldn't waste their time with that. You know what? 
let me say as one of those kids who found reading easy and science easy and math easy, that's going to happen to us all the time. There's all kinds of time you're going to stand up there and teach me something I already know. It's not a problem for me. I get used to it really quickly. Don't worry about it. Now, in third grade, if you've got seven kids in the room who still don't have their phonics down, should I teach that to everybody? No, you should pull those kids off on the side. But in first grade, when you're teaching a phonics lesson and some of your kids are reading chapter books already, don't worry. You're not hurting them. They're no, and they're, and they're improving their spelling. I mean, how many kids right. could read and they pick reading up, but they don't have the spelling because they were not taught well and they weren't taught to really look at those spelling patterns. Especially yeah. in the modern age where kids are not being taught manuscript and in, in cursive the way they Oh, that's people. another story. Also. So they associate, instead of associating the letter A with this, they yeah. associate the letter A with bam, this. And you know what? Hitting one key or another on my keyboard with different fingers is pretty much the same damn thing as far as my brain is concerned. So it doesn't really distinguish between different letters very well. We could be here a whole week talking just about that, but that's another story. But in any case, um, Bruce changed up his blog yeah. after hearing what you had to say, Steve, and then after we spoke on our um, podcast. And like you said, he was very open oh. to this. And I, 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 I couldn't do it. If, I, if somebody had come back with something I wrote that way, I'd say, let's go. You know, ego gets in the way, but... He really took it and wanted to hear what you had to say and was hoping that we would discuss his revisions. And this I found very interesting. He opened up with this little paragraph. He said, it is ironic that those who embrace the science of reading are often reluctant to adopt current research advances that supersede, not replace, long-held practices for developmental reading instruction. Equally surprising is that balanced literacy advocates are resisting these same advances, which promote their central focus, deriving meaning from print. Now, what he's basically saying right in the opening, which he didn't oh, yeah. have in his last blog, he changed that, um, that we both need to really look at what this is, and come together because we're wasting valuable time. And, you know, he said this in the conclusion, yet when you look at this press release from Reading Recovery, and that's why I'm tying it in, my fear is that they make it sound like science of reading people. It's all about phonics first, right. only phonics, and that we don't care about anything else but this. And when it comes out like that and it's twisted, it really does almost sound logical, you know, and um, I think what Bruce, here's here's my problem with it. Yeah. Let me tell Go you ahead. what I think is good about it. I think he's right. Yeah. But the problem is there's not enough detail there. So when he says when he says he doesn't say this exactly, but it's a subset of what he says. People on the side of the science of reading, it's ironic that they are unwilling to accept the science about certain things. Without pointing out what some of those things are and giving examples, yes, it invites everybody to imagine for themselves what it is. 
And if that's I'm a recovery said. person, I say, that's right, because they ignore the science that says that three cues is a great idea. That's right, because they ignore the they ignore the science that says reading recovery is the best thing. What he's the truth is it does happen, but it's everybody has to, we can't let everybody decide for themselves without some scientific input where that's happening. I think some places that happens. That's such a good point. You know, yeah, some if you you know, if, yeah. if you said if you sit in a room full of people, if you sit in a room full of people and say, you know, this I saw this on a uh, movie one time. Somebody was standing in front of a law school class and said, "Understand, by the three years from now, when this, when your class is ready to graduate, two out of every three of you is not going to be here anymore. You're going to already have dropped out. You're not going to be graduating." The funny thing is, is everybody looks at the people on the right and their left. Everybody's having the same thought. Wow, I'm going to miss these people. You know, <laughs> nobody thinks they're the one who's going to go. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, that's. But didn't you try to do that imagine. with the table? I know I didn't like what was in the table, but that is what he tried to do in the table was to get a little bit more detailed about the different sides. I no? think it was, he, he was too focused on even Stephen and getting it all. Well, I agree with that. I agree with that. I the table because I didn't think I fit into those categories and right, those categories right. as he defined them wasn't how I saw myself in either of those roles. So right. I was like, hmm, that wasn't me. I'll give you some examples that I see, I think, on our side of the fence. So if you say, if you go to a lot of people on our side of the fence and, I, you know, I'm glad I'm in this room alone and I don't think people know where I live and they're not going to come and shoot me. Um, if you talk, If you talk about set for variability, Mm -hmm. A lot of people on the science of reading side lose their mind. Um, Wait, say that again? I missed that. That for variability. The idea that okay. particularly when you approach the vowel portion of every word, that you be prepared, you be sort of prepared that this could be one of several sounds and the rules are going to help me, but they're not going to necessarily give me the answer. And, you know, I should explore other ways of applying these sounds and find the ones that work well. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's what the word is. Um, and do that over and over again as I read. That that's a good thing to do for kids who are typically developing readers. I think that's probably a good thing to do. I think it's probably a very good thing to do. Um, and it certainly fits with what Mark Seidenberg says and what his models show that you're going to need that sort of ignites statistical learning. You're going to have more experiences with these sounds and you're going to figure out things you don't even know you figured out. You don't, you know, it's an interesting thing. If you, if you put in uh, nonsense words, so words that don't actually exist in the language that all start with the letter C, the letter C and then followed by a vowel. So, and then you ask people, how would you read this word? They'll mostly get that hard and soft sound of the C correct. But if you ask them, what's the rule that and it's a very good rule, it's a very reliable rule. What's the rule that determines whether you pronounce that as a K sound or an S sound? Most people can't tell you what it is. Yet if you give them those nonsense words, they can do it. That's an example of statistical learning. It's a really good example of statistical learning. Also, something I saw from Tim Shanahan, a point he made recently, which I think is really important. And understand, Tim and I have butted heads viciously online over a number of things. And I was right and he was wrong. But in this, <laughs> in this respect, one of the things Tim said, and I thought, 
One of the things I think he said that was absolutely right, and he said very, very efficiently, is there are so many rules and examples of orthographic, you know, orthographic relationships between letters and sounds in the English language. There are several hundred of those. There's several hundred grapheme. Some people estimate 240, 250 grapheme combinations. We're not teaching all of those. Mm-hmm. Nobody's teaching all of those. If kids aren't going to be able to read fluently until we teach all of them, then nobody's going to learn to read. So you have to acknowledge that mo- the vast majority of readers hit a certain point and they start figuring a lot of this out for themselves. Right. Should you check in once in a while to make sure they're getting it right? Should you keep feeding them some explicit instruction to keep moving them forward and accelerate them? Absolutely. But it, pe- there are people on our side who believe these kids aren't going to do anything that I don't explicitly teach to them. Oh, no. Oh, no. If that's what's going to happen, we're all doomed. You know, so, that's that's so never going to happen. Overboard. It, it, right. it, we go overboard. And then kind of get stuck and and feel, well, I'm right. It's almost so like one of the challenges right. on our side, and I think you'll agree with this. One of the challenges on our side is that for years, the staunchest advocates for the science of reading, the the most powerful advocates for the science of reading were people who worked very closely in, in an incredibly dedicated way with kids who struggled to read and were dyslexic. So their understanding of how to teach reading to everybody is based on that. And it's hard for them to accept that when you get to a classroom of more typically developing readers, there's a bunch of kids in here. They don't need that. I was engaged in a debate with somebody about five, 10 years ago, some people online who were debating, when you do the multi-sensory part of Orton-Gillingham, is it better to use rice or sand or shaving cream? <laughs> and they were they were like ready to pull out hammers and go at each other. Rice is terrible. It's never good. You got to use okay. sand. Now let's do shaving cream. Yeah. Then I realized they were talking about doing this with typically developing readers. And I said, why are you doing it all? And they said, right. you have to do this or nobody will learn to read. I'm like, oh my God. Right. Right. And you know, you forget that a lot of kids were able to learn to read without all of this. And, you know, I think it's also including my baby, including my son, Leo, he's uh, 18 years old. He's in college. His major is screenwriting and he doesn't know the syllable types and he's fine. He doesn't need to. He knows them without knowing he knows them. That's what happens. He can't tell them to you. He can't teach them to anybody else, but he knows them. It's like one of the things I do about this, because, you know, the, the word they like to throw back in our face all the time is the because they point out that the is phonetically irregular. With all due respect to everybody, the is perfectly phonetically regular. The rule is just so complicated, you could never teach it to a first grader. But you know the rule. And the reason you know that I know you know the rule is I'm going to say the same sentence twice differently. I'll say a series of sentences. Some will sound good and some will sound bad. I can say, this is Muhammad Ali, the heavyweight champion of the world. Or I can say, this is Muhammad Ali, the heavyweight champion of the world. Those both sound fine. I can say, can you pass the butter? That sounds fine. I can't say if you pass the butter, it sounds fine. Your brain knows that I've misused that word, but I said it over there and it was fine. Why is that okay? Because when I say the heavyweight champion of the world, the has enormous morphological weight. It's standing in for the longer phrase, 
the one and only. And when it has heavy morphological weight, then it follows the rule of the open syllable. When it has no morphological weight, it follows the rule of, of a poorly weighted open syllable. Yeah. We almost always pronounce as a schwa. Now, mm -hmm. if you want me to teach that to a first grader, it will blow their freaking mind and nobody's going to understand it. God, <laughs> good luck getting a teacher who can even try to explain it to them. There's going to be one tomorrow morning, Steve, because this episode is going to be dropping. You don't have to explain it to the vast, vast, vast majority There's going of kids. to be somebody that tries it, Steve. They don't need to do it. They don't need to do it. No, the fascinating part about it is, Everybody knows which of those, I said two sentences told four different ways. Three of them sounded fine. One of them sounded terrible. Everybody's brain, everybody listening to this would pick out the one that sounded terrible, even though most of them couldn't explain why it sounded terrible. And that's statistical learning. So to All wrap right. this up, I want to just know what you think then about multi-component literacy instruction. Because I think Yes, it is multi-component. And explain to everybody that that is very different from what we know of as balanced literacy. Because I think this is going to get very confusing for people because we keep having this, like the, the words keep morphing from whole language to balanced literacy. And now I could see multi-component becoming that even though that's not what the intention is from this article or the authors. Right. So here's the problem. Here's the problem. We want to tell everybody what to do. and We don't want to tell anybody what not to do. The things that define better reading instruction are more likely things that we that we tell you not to do than things that. Well, just you do. Um, and the, the the ratio in which you do things. So, you know, if you start out multi, if you start talking about multi-component reinstruction and you neglect saying it doesn't mean this and it doesn't mean this and it doesn't mean this and it doesn't mean this, people are going to think it means all those things. You're going to leave room for people to believe it means all those things. And that's unfortunate. Um, you know, I have a way of describing the science of reading that I've been presenting at conferences. People can find some of these online from the different conferences that have posted them. Um, and I use this graphic of a bullseye and I say, the stuff in the middle of the bullseye, the science in the middle of the bullseye, that's stuff that's not going to change. That's not going anywhere. Don't talk to me about pendulum swinging. Don't talk to me about the pot. You know, it's things like phonics matters and phonemic awareness is important and explicit instruction is better than inferential, you know, implicit instruction. Those things aren't going anywhere. Those are going to be true. But as you move out from the center, so if I say phonics is really important and you say, that's right, that's bullseye material. We're, we agree with each other. If then you say, and I, I teach my phonics rules in this order, and that's the science of reading too. That should never change. That order should never change. should be the same for every kid. Then I say, no, no, no. That's not the science of reading. That's a good scientific estimate of what you should do about that. It's very close to the bullseye. It's well supported. There might be some research that supports it. It's certainly true that we shouldn't start phonetic phonics instruction by teaching Q, X, and Z. I don't think those are the first letters we should begin with. Um, and there's good reasons for why people use the letters they do and in the order they do. But that's not that's not proven in the same way that phonics as a general principle is proven. As we move out from the middle, we find more and more practices 
that are getting further and further from the hard science and closer and closer to get to us saying, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when thing, the other thing that's problematic in the science is if you show me, and this is, I'm going to say something really dangerous here, so I have to qualify it too. If you show me a study that teaching phonemic awareness with letters or without letters, with tokens versus letters, that one is better, that generally speaking, one is better than the other one. Let me tell you something. It's not going to be better than the other one for everybody. So mm-hmm. you better know how to do it the other way. Should you start with the one? If you got one that says this is better, this is twice as good on a population of kids, should you start with that one? Absolutely. But if it doesn't seem to be working and the kid is confused, you should be ready to, to break this down further and isolate some skills more. Because what's better is not better for everybody. You know, someplace there's a study that shows this is the medicine that's best for lowering cholesterol, or this is the best medicine that's best for treating depression. This is the medicine that's best for improving uh, um, hypertension. But there are other medicines available because you know what? That may not be the best one for everybody. Now, the dangerous part of me saying that is there's going to be people who watch this and say, that's why we need three queuing. That's why we, because because phonics isn't going to be best for everybody. Some kids right. are going to need those three cues. Mm-hmm. Saying that not, that it's not the best for everybody is not saying that everything works for somebody. Mm-hmm. Right, right. There's stuff that doesn't work because you know what? If your blood pressure medicine isn't working and your your doctor wants to prescribe another medicine, he shouldn't prescribe an antibiotic. Mm-hmm. Antibiotics are good for some things, but they're not good for lowering blood pressure. You can try a lot of other blood pressure medicines. You can do some other things probably, but we shouldn't skip to an antibiotic. We shouldn't give you steroids. We shouldn't do other things like that because that's not going to work. That doesn't work for anybody. Hmm. So you once said, Steve, that we have a marketing problem. I I watched your um, presentation about how SOR has a marketing problem. So to sum up, what do you think is going to happen with reading recovery? Is it going to um, be that maybe their marketing plan is a little bit better? Their marketing plan has been a lot better. Um, mm-hmm. One of the reasons their marketing plan has been better is they are not encumbered by truth and facts. Um, they can, you know, people who are selling snake oil uh, or some version of snake oil can always be very quick with their marketing because they can say anything they want. They don't have to wonder, is this really true? Can I really say this? It doesn't matter. We're going to say whatever works. So, you know, as Mark Twain said, you know, a lie can make it halfway around the world while the truth is putting on its pants. So, you know, that's part of the problem we're up against. On the other hand, the marketing problem, for people who are unfamiliar, the marketing problem I said we had was that too much of our argument sounded like we were looking at people who believed in balanced literacy and saying, do this, dumbass. You know, we were, we were, we were, if we're honest about it, and I was as guilty as anyone, we sounded pretty insulting sometimes. Like, how in the world do people not know this? You know, nobody likes being talked to that way. Nobody likes that. That was necessary to some extent to get us where we are now, where we seem to be have all the momentum and the dominoes are toppling and things are changing faster than I ever thought they would. Um, So now my attention is really turning more to our people. I'm less worried about their cult and I'm more worried about our cult. I'm less worried about talking them out of it than I am making sure that we don't form our own version of the the, uh, reading police 
and you know, become so orthodox that there's no room for anybody to try anything different or to disagree with us even slightly. You know, that's just that's just not good. That's not healthy. That's not how these things have to happen. You know, Mark Seidenberg can stand up in front of a room of SOAR advocates and say, I'm not sure we need to teach every phonics rule that anybody can come up with. And half the room will gasp and pass out and turn blue on the floor. You know, there's an important message there. Now, Mark is more worried about the opportunity cost of teaching things to kids that they don't really need taught to them anymore. He He's more worried about that. I'm less worried about that. As the teacher from Oakland, Margaret Goldberg said, you know, I understand that you're worried about overteaching. She says, I'm worried about underteaching. I think underteaching is a much bigger problem than overteaching. Keeping a kid one lesson longer than they need or teaching them some things they already know doesn't worry me. Now, there are people on our side of the fence, some really hardcore former tutors who would say, you know, you give a kid one, you know, you give a kid some phonics lessons, you give them one decodable reader after another, they hammer these things out, they master these things in, in minutes or seconds. And somebody would say, well, we still can't pass them on to uncontrolled text until they've gone through all their phonics lessons. Of right. course you can. Yeah. Send them to the library and tell, you know, and find out how they're doing. These are kids who these are kids who are really, really good at statistical learning. You do not have to hold them back. You do not have to rein them in. In fact, letting them read that other stuff and getting through your lessons faster gives you more time to work with the kids who aren't naturally great statistical learners. Um, so flexibility. Oh um, God, yeah. We I think that's the message here. Without without um going to the point of accepting what doesn't work. What we know doesn't right. work. Right. Flexibility and, doesn't mean everything's in play. Doesn't mean correct. that. Correct. And I think that's a good place to wrap up. Judy, any last thoughts that we didn't cover or questions that you have? So Steve, thank you for joining us. I was really excited to meet you. I'm honored okay. that we have this awesome discussion. So my final thoughts, let's definitely not politicize literacy please everybody let's unite and get the shit done already kids need to learn how to read adults need to learn how to read everybody everybody needs to be literate everybody all sides everyone um let's get rid of those fences we're all you know we need to let's move away from sides i am a living example i was on a side, and then I was now on this side. No, we're one. We yeah, need to find those right for the kids. As yeah. you know, when Reading Recovery just stepped up and they said that, you know, um, that the signs of reading people are selling a story and, and all of that stuff, there's a lot of truth in the story. But now the good thing is that, you know, people in the field are starting to talk. It's not only the journalists, it's educators starting to talk about, you know, what's happening in those classrooms. And there were many things that we need to yes. think. It's time. And I think that Reading Recovery missed the boat. They should have acted faster. And um, this fighting back in a way that doesn't even detail the things that they did get wrong. It's, I, 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 you know, I I'm speechless. I can't even, there's nothing I could say. If, reading, nothing, if the model of reading recovery, that is a highly trained, dedicated teacher 
sitting with a child individually, working with them individually intensely over a period of time. If you use that model, I don't care if you call it reading recovery, if you use that model and the things that teacher is doing are based on the science of reading, I guarantee you that would be the most effective program out there. Yep. And what they did get right was all the support, the coaching, yes. um, you know, their their model of working with teachers. That was another good thing was being behind the glass. I mean, having people watch me teach and giving me feedback on the spot, that Everything is part, right? a big part of the science as well. So I think that they missed the boat. They had a great opportunity to say, you know what? There's we we believe in many of the things that we did do well and they should have shifted. And the fact that they're not talking about shifting, I've had enough. So I'm not on any side. The other thing they got right is they convinced school districts. You know what? This is important. It's going to cost money. Don't be a cheap state, cheapskate. Let's do it. They they were very good at that. And yes. we can learn a lot about that. Indeed. Yeah, but that only lasts Thank for you. a little while. Thank it's you. expensive. Yeah, it is expensive. <laughs> we could go on and on and on yes. and on. Probably. But thank when you. When are you coming back on our show? We've got a lot of time. <laughs> well, I, don't know. I don't know. Well, we would love I'll to. Put a different picture that. behind me and we'll do this again. <laughs> thank you. It was great yeah. speaking with you. It always, always I love listening to you. Thank you so yeah. much. And yeah. thank you to everybody who joined us. Thank okay. you for inviting me and giving me this opportunity. You know, I, I, I have no platform of my own. I really enjoyed doing this. I'm very honored by the way I'm received by this community. Thank you all so much. Thank you. you bet. Good night. Take care, everybody. Thank you.